Go ahead and have you guys open your Bible to Exodus 21, if you don't mind. I know we have guests in here with us, guests watching online. We are in a long journey through the book of Exodus, just going chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But I'm, I'm going to go ahead and admit something to you from the very beginning. I completely wanted to skip the passage of Scripture that we're about to read today. I don't know if you know this, but sometimes we pastors will just jump over portions of Scripture if it's a little too controversial, a little too confrontational, too confusing. There's a side we're going like, okay, I'll cover the first half of the book of Daniel, but not the second half of the book of Daniel. Uh, I'll cover uh, the first part of the book of Exodus, but not the second part of the book of Exodus. And there's a reason why. Some of the stuff is incredibly confusing and controversial. And I'm going to go ahead and just let, let the cat out of the bag from the beginning here. So the passage we're going to read, verse number two starts, when you buy a Hebrew slave and then gives instructions. You're going, What? What do, you do? what do you do with a passage of Scripture that gives instructions on how to buy a human being? And, and then, if, if that weren't bad enough, you get over to verse 7, and then it says, when a father sells his daughter into slavery, this is what you do. Well, I don't want to read a book about some scumbag who's selling his daughter into slavery. What, what, in, what in the world do you even do with this? You want to know what I want to do? I'm just going to imagine that's not even in the Bible. Let's go over to Exodus 32 and read about a golden calf. Let's, let's move on to something else. Because it's just, it's super confusing. And I, I remember working on the sermon summary for this going, I don't, I don't even know what to do with this, Lord. How, how, do, I, how do I bring this truth? Seems like uh, I'm, I'm dead even just reading the passage of Scripture. Uh, I don't even want to try it because there is so much controversy and baggage and history that comes with any time you even mention this context. And, and I think that the, the natural impulse is to do a one of two things. It's to do what I've been talking about. Like those of you who've read through the Bible, you're like, okay, well, I'll just sweep this one under the rug. I don't know what to do with this. I'm just going to skip it. I'd rather just to believe my God is good and this kind of messes it up, so I don't even want to think about it. Or there are plenty of people who read a book like this or passage like this and go, I don't want to have anything to do with this book. This book apparently condones slavery and any institution that would condone slavery justifiably needs to be condemned, and therefore I don't have anything to do with this book. And there's a lot of people who in coming to a verse like this have said, I'm done. But I want to suggest a third way, and it's to read the passage and deal with it head on in the context of the larger book, the Bible. And when you see the whole of Scripture and you look at what this particular passage is teaching, I think you'll come to a very different conclusion than what you immediately feel. And here's my hope and my prayer, that by the end of the sermon today, through this particular passage of Scripture, you're going to love God more, not less. And I'm going to go ahead and admit it's a, it's, a, it's a tall order, and I don't know if I can do it, but I'm going to try. And so I'm going to ask you to journey with me. We're going to start in Exodus 21, beginning in verse 1. It starts off pretty easy, and so we'll, maybe I'll just stop there and we'll pray and go on. But here's what verse 1 says. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. Okay, we're going to, we're going to pause there. Here's why I want to pause. This is a shift in the book of Exodus again. There's been multiple shifts in the book. If you know, we had the, the whole kind of history lesson part of it leading up to the crossing of the Red Sea. And then you had the Red Sea. You have that miracle going into the wilderness wandering where they're learning lessons. And then we went over into the Ten Commandments. We just came out of that sermon series about the Ten Commandments where we're looking at these ten principles. The first four really focus on our relationship with God. The last six focus on our relationship with the people around us. And now we've got these principles, but we don't know what to do with them. And so now the book of Exodus takes another shift and it says, here are these 10 principles. Let me show you how to live them in everyday life to the nation of Israel. 
They're the rules and regulations, the nuts and bolts of how to live out the Ten Commandments. Okay, that's the safe part. And now we get into the nitty-gritty. Verse 2, we're going to read verses 2 through 11. It says, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she does not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. For if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Okay, I, I told you it was crazy, and I didn't, want to, I didn't want to preach it until I studied it, and I realized what was going on in this particular passage of Scripture. And my mind just went, because we look at, I've looked at this so incorrectly my whole life, never really understood it, kind of been the sweep it under the rug kind of guy, because I don't, I don't know how to deal with it. But it all came down to understanding the word ebed. It, it, it says slave there in verse two. Now, if you have the English standard version, that's the version I'm reading from, there'll be a little footnote and it'll say ebed on the bottom and it'll say this refers to a whole bunch of different positions in a social class. Meaning it's not exactly what you and I think of when we hear the word slave. Now, I've got to say this, and I want to be as clear as I possibly can. There is an atrocity in the church, in the American church, where this particular passage of Scripture has been used and abused to support the institution of slavery in the United States of America. And that needs to be condemned wholesale, and there needs to be repentance and restoration from the evil that has taken place inside the church. Because this particular passage of scripture, nor any other in the Bible, condones any form of the historic institution of slavery as you and I are familiar with. And the reason why we recoil at a passage of scripture like this is because of the historic uh, slavery in America that we should recoil against, that should feel ungodly, because it does not align with the heart of God. And we have to forsake any person who would ever use a passage of scripture like this to even justify that it happened. Even to go, well, today is okay, but you know, this, it was okay that it happened in the past. Or to act like somebody benefited from it. I think we have to be so clear in this one that the, the form of slavery, anytime there's a slave, anytime there's a human being thought of as someone else's property is condemned before Almighty God because of the very things we talked about in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are all about the dignity of the human being. They bear the image of God regardless of their skin color, regardless of what country they're from, what socioeconomic level. They, they bear the very mark of the image of God. And as such, they should never be treated like anything less than someone who bears the image of God. And so we have to be so clear from the beginning. There is no place in this particular passage to confuse it that way. But as I studied it, I realized what, what an ebed, what, what, this, what it translates as slave actually is. A much better translation would be an indentured servant. So, so here's how it worked. There would be a person in Old Testament times who would be in grinding poverty or who would be overwhelmed by some crippling debt, and they would actually sell themselves into indentured servitude. 
This was completely different than what you and I think of when we hear the word slave. We think of a human being that is being trafficked for someone else's profit. That is not what this is talking about at all. There were three primary differences that help you recognize the difference between the atrocity that took place in our country or even the atrocity that's taking place right now in our world where humans, especially children, are being trafficked for financial gain. That is not what this is talking about. Here are the three main points that you need to know that make this different. And you need to have these clear in your mind so you can distinguish between what is evil and what God is talking about in his word. The first one is this. This ebed, this indentured servant, was a voluntary decision, not an involuntary decision. So the evil form of slavery that you and I think about, a human being being trafficked, is an involuntary decision. A human being is captured, and then they are put in a system where they are enslaved and they are sold for somebody else's property. They want out, but they cannot get out. That is not what this is talking about. And the reason you know it's not what it's talking about, because of verse 16. So skip forward in chapter 21 of Exodus. Go to verse 16. Listen to what it says. It says, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Right here, this is giving the highest form of punishment, capital punishment, to anybody who would traffic another human being. So the form of slavery that comes to our mind is condemned by the Bible to to capture or trap somebody for geopolitical or race reasons and then to use them for profit is condemned in the highest form of capital, capital punishment. But what's going on in the scriptures right here is actually something voluntary. Which you're going, why in the world would anybody voluntarily choose to become an indentured servant to somebody else? Well, what you got to understand is the historical context. you, you got to remember, in ancient Israel, you could not go to Catholic charities to get some help. You, you couldn't drive over to Mission Arlington to get some food or furniture. You, you didn't get to go to Arben, Arlington Urban Ministries and get some help on rent. Like You couldn't go find social services to get help. If you were impoverished, then you would die. You had no recourse. And the number one form of poverty was debt you owed to somebody else. If you had a debt to somebody, every dollar you earned had to be given over to them to pay back that debt. And that meant you couldn't buy food. You couldn't buy clothes. You couldn't buy animals to run a business. You couldn't keep a home to live in. And you would literally die of starvation. But if you were indebted to a master or to a person who had a business, a wealthy landowner who had a farm, who had a ranch, what you would do is you would sell yourself as an indentured servant to that person to pay back the debt. But let me tell you how it worked in ancient times. When you went under a master, that master was required by law to put a roof over your head. You lived in your master's home. And not only did you have a roof over your head, he was required to allow you to eat at his table. So you had three square meals a day at his table, guaranteed. He paid you a fair wage, and some of that wage you would use to pay back your debt, and then once you had that debt paid, you were able to keep on storing up for yourself for the future. You were given clothes on your back, and here was the most important thing. You were actually given training in whatever field that master was good at. If he was a rancher, you were learning how to tend the animals, how to shepherd the sheep, how to to bring milk and sell it. If it was a farmer and he was using the oxen to plow, you would learn the way you plant and the way you water and how to have a business on your own. So all of this was a means of getting out of this crippling debt and this grinding poverty to make sure that you had food on your table. It was voluntary. A person would sell themselves to this in order to get out of debt, get out of what was crippling them and killing them, literally. So it was voluntary, not involuntary. 
Now, I know I hear that, and there's some of you pretty astute theologians out there, and you're going, Jason, I hear you in verses two through six, but what about verse seven? That doesn't sound voluntary to me. When a father sells his daughter as a slave, that sounds pretty involuntary to me. And I, I, don't, I don't see any room in humanity for that to take place. And, and I get it. I understand because we come at it in our modern eye of understanding child trafficking, and we know how evil that is, and that's what takes place. A human being is devalued and sold for money and profit. That is not what's happening in the Bible. And the reason you know it is because of the instructions that are given. It says that when a female comes in, you don't get to send her out like you would a male slave. And here's the reason why. She was protected under the house of a master. Again, I'm going to give you some history that you might not realize. In ancient times, a female was not allowed to work outside of the home. I'm just looking at somebody right now who's a medical doctor. She could not be a medical doctor back then. She would work in the home. There are many of you who are business people and school teachers and you have jobs that you do. Like you, you have a job and you're able to provide. You could be independent. And if you wanted to advance, you could do well. I mean, when you're younger and kids, young ladies have the ability to score high on their SAT, go to a business school, become a CEO of a company and make money for themselves and be independent. No female in ancient times could do that. She was utterly dependent on the men around her. When she was a daughter, she was dependent on her father until she got married and she would be dependent upon her husband and she would pray for sons because one day she would be dependent upon her sons. She was always dependent on the men around her. She could not get an education. She could not get a job. She had no means to protect herself. So this particular female, the daughter, is under the care of her father. Now remember, we're dealing with people in grinding poverty, overwhelmed with crippling debt. This means the father cannot provide for his daughter. He cannot put food on the table for her. And because she is utterly dependent on her father, she will either starve to death or she will have to sell herself into prostitution. There was no other means for her to have food on the table unless the father was willing to give up his daughter and allow her to be an ebed of a master. And this was actually a loss for the father because the, the daughter served the father in the home. She would help cook. She would help do the, the chores around the house, run some of the business places. And the father was actually dependent on his daughter. But if he could not provide because of debt, he had to be willing to give up her services to him to allow her to be, give services to another master. But that would guarantee that she would have food at a table, a roof over her head, clothes on her back, and she would be cared for. This wasn't a means to enslave, to make a buck. This was a, a means to help her daughter thrive. In fact, you see it, his greatest hope was that his daughter would go into that home, she would please the master so much the master would let his own son marry her. And when his son married her, she became part of that wealthy family. This was the only way you could move up in the social ladder in ancient Israel. There was no other way. You had to marry into it. This was the best chance she had to thrive is if her father put her in the home of a wealthy landowner. So this is a protection of the daughter, not an enslavement of the daughter. This was voluntary. It was not involuntary. That's, that's the first one. Second, massive difference between what we think of when we hear slavery and this scriptural idea of indentured servitude is that it was not cruel or oppressive like what we think of when we hear slavery. That there was no grounds for there to be cruel oppression of a human being. Because remember the Ten Commandments, every human being bears the, the very image of God. They must be treated well. And it's no different here. That's what verses 26 and 27 are in the same chapter. Look at this. Exodus 21, verses 26 and 27. 
When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Now, let me tell you the difference here between what we think of in human trafficking and what's going on here. If you think about American history of slavery, those who were enslaved by the master had no recourse if they were mistreated. They, they were oppressed and they were, they were treated cruelly and, and ungodly and no one could do anything to stop it if they were a slave to a master. The master could do whatever he wanted. That was not the case here. If that master did something to harm that indentured servant, then immediately it says that servant can go out with no payment of money, meaning the debt is completely canceled. It doesn't matter if he owed $100,000 and he'd only been working for one week. If that master did something to oppress that servant, immediately the complete debt, $100,000 is forgiven. He's able to go out free because you didn't get to treat another human being that way. It was a completely different institution entirely. But the biggest change that you see between the two is on the third difference. When you think of slavery, it's permanent. But this was always meant to be temporary. That's what verse 2 was talking about. The most profound difference of all, the most shocking truth, is the whole purpose of this indentured servitude. It says, for six years he shall serve in that home, and on the seventh year he shall be set out free. Let me tell you what's going on here. This whole thing is actually a social welfare system. It is a means of taking those who are in poverty and putting them back on their own two feet. And it's a six-year process to do so. Remember what I told you before. For those six years, he is, that person, man, male or female, is guaranteed a home, food, clothing, regular work, and honest wage for six whole years. And they're, like I said before, in that wage, they're paying back the debt. And once the debt's paying back, they're storing all the rest of that money. And in the seventh year, they're able to go out free. But they're not just sent out like, sayonara, see ya, did your six years, out you go. They were actually set out, furnished with all the capital they needed to start their own business. Keep your place in Exodus 21. I want you, if you're fast enough, to switch over to Deuteronomy chapter 15. It's just three books later. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, after Exodus. Chapter 15. And I want to read a few verses, verses 12 through 15, so you can see exactly what happened in the seventh year. Deuteronomy 15, 12 says, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman is sold to you. Now I'm going to pause there. Here's another little footnote. It says is sold to you. And if you go to the bottom, it'll say, or sells himself. It's what's called a, a middle voice in Hebrew. And it's talking about if, if a person sells themselves, remember this is voluntary, not involuntary. So if a, a man or a Hebrew woman sells themselves to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today." Notice what he says. In year seven, absolutely, you're going to send out that person who has been an indentured servant serving you in your home for these six years. But when you send them out, you don't say good luck. He says you give them liberally. Now that word is translated liberally. It's not actually in the Bible. In Hebrew, it says furnishing them, you will furnish them, which sounds like super redundant, but that's the most emphatic way in Hebrew to say something. It means extravagantly. In fact, the word would be adorn them. 
It's like putting jewels all over them. Extravagantly bless them when they leave with all the wheat they need to bake bread and have the food to eat from your threshing floor, with all the wine they need to drink from your wine press to make sure they have what they need to sustain themselves. But most importantly, liberally, extravagantly from animals from your flock. Why? Because they're about to start a business. They've been storing up their money. They've been learning your trade for the last six years, and now they're going to open up their own ranch or their own farm, and they're going to need the oxen to plow the ground or the goat to milk. They're going to need the animals in order to start their own business because now they are on their own. The whole point of this was not to enslave a human being. This was a pathway to freedom. That's why it's so categorically different than what you and I think of. This is a social system to care for those who are most vulnerable and weak. And there's a reason why God wanted them to do it differently. Because they knew what it meant like, what it felt like, and what it meant to be slaves to somebody else. They knew the difference between the two. Did you see verse 15? Look back at Deuteronomy 15. Look at the reason he gave. He said, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. He says, guys, don't you ever forget what it was like to be a slave. You were slaves in the land of Egypt just a few months ago. You knew what it felt like to be someone else's property. Pharaoh beat you and oppressed you and never gave you rest. He treated you like a piece of property. And you remember how hellish it was. Don't you dare turn around and treat another human being that way. What God is doing in Exodus 21 is teaching them a principle that you and I would later learn from Jesus called the golden rule. Many of you know it. It's found in Luke, or excuse me, Matthew 7, 12. Listen to what it says. Jesus says this. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. However you would want to be treated, that's the way you're supposed to treat other people. He's saying in this Exodus 21 is a message written to all the wealthy people among the Hebrews who are going to be bringing in indentured servants. He's saying treat them the way that you would want to be treated. You remember what it was like in Egypt. Don't you dare do that to anybody else. Treat them the way you would want to be treated. Now, that's how you and I apply this truth today. I want to make sure you understand what it's saying. There are people all around you every single day who are in grinding poverty, people who are broken. And maybe that's a financial poverty. Maybe it's a spiritual poverty. Maybe it's an emotional poverty. But they are broken and weak and vulnerable. There are creditors out to get them. There are human beings out to get them. There's an enemy out to get them. And they're weak and vulnerable. Down on their luck, overwhelmed, and God says, treat them the way you would want to be treated if you're in their shoes. Well, how would you want to be treated if your life was falling apart? If you didn't know how you were going to survive? If you didn't know how you were going to make ends meet and you were down on your luck, how would you want to be treated? Well, let me tell you what you wouldn't want. You wouldn't want somebody going, oh, pobrecito, so sad for him. You don't want somebody feeling sorry for you. You sure don't want somebody oppressing you. You don't want somebody making fun of you. You know what you would want? You would want somebody to see you, to not look the other way. Oh, no, that person's got a problem. I got too much. To look at them, to see them. You would want somebody to believe in you, to see there's still gold inside you and there's still potential and possibility. And then you would want somebody to invest in you. To say, I'm not just going to throw five bucks at you and hope it gets better, but I'm going to invest my life in you. Those three things, 
you want somebody to see you, believe in you, and invest in you are the same three things that he called the nation of Israel to do. He said, if there's somebody who's so unfortunate, they had to sell themselves to you as an indentured servant, that here's what I want you to do, Israelites. I want you to see them in their brokenness and their weakness. I want you to believe that after six years, you can raise them up and send them out. And I want you to invest heavily in them. Show them how to run a business. Show them what life is supposed to look like. Put food on their table, a roof over their head, clothes on their back. And then in the seventh year, you send them out liberally, extravagantly. Bless them so they can be on their own two feet because they are worth it. This is God's plan for the redemption of those who are hurting. And I want you to know God's plan works. I've seen it firsthand. God allowed me to get a glimpse of this in a very unusual way. That there was a gentleman who came to this service about seven years ago, and he was at the, the lowest moment of his life. He allowed me to share the story with you. I talked to him about it. <clears throat> but he, when, he, when he first came to this church service, he came down for prayer, and he met uh, a gentleman in our church named Mark Cooper for prayer. And if you know Mark Cooper, uh, Mark's going to make something happen. And so when he met Mark for prayer, he just, Mark said, hey, Jason, I think you need to meet this young man uh, and hear his story and where he's at and pray with him. So I always do what Mark Cooper says. So he said, meet with him. I said, yes, sir. And so I, I set up an appointment with this young man and we went out to uh, a Starbucks pretty close to UTA campus, just he and I could meet. And for a couple of hours, we just had a conversation. He, he told me all that was going on in his life. And he was low. He was, he was a broken man. He had been through a very difficult divorce and things were heavy and hard in his life. And it was, it was, it was ugly. He had just gone through a very hard job loss and he was struggling with a sense of purpose and identity. And honestly, he's looking at all this stuff going and he's watching his bank account get lower and lower, wondering what's going to come next, not knowing what opportunities are going. I, I don't know what's going on. I don't know where to turn, but I'm overwhelmed by my circumstances. And when I heard him, I was overwhelmed too. It was one of those, you going, I don't even know where to start. But God in that moment did something to my heart. As I was looking at him, looking into his eyes, I could see him. And what I could see was incredible potential. I could see a man that if somebody just invested a little bit of time and energy in him, he could be completely different in a few years. And listen, I, I know I can't do this with everybody and no one can help everybody in their need, but God will bring certain people in your life every once in a while and allow you to see them, to believe in them, and then choose to invest in them. And God was calling me to invest in this young man. And so I just began to meet regularly with him. This wasn't a financial investment. This was an emotional investment. It was a spiritual investment. And my main job was just to speak words of truth because the enemy was shouting at him, trying to condemn him and tell him he was nothing. He had no value, no purpose, no future. And I would just combat that with the word of God showing who he is. He came to a point through this, and this to his credit, in the middle of his greatest moment of despair, the one place he went was the church. He says, I don't know where to turn. I'm going to turn to God. And he came and we counseled with him. He gave his life to Jesus Christ. I got to baptize him a number of years ago and it was a beautiful moment. And it was then, in that moment of giving himself to Christ, that I saw some kind of switch just flip. And I saw a man become hungry for the word of God. I saw a man who started to say, listen, I know my life is in shambles, but God's got purpose for me. And I saw him begin to change the way he viewed his home and his children. I saw him begin to take incredibly humbling steps to provide for his family. He was making so much more. He took a job making a lot less, but he said, I'm going to work to provide for my family. And it doesn't matter what somebody else thinks about me. I saw him humble himself and work his tail off. I saw him start volunteering at the church and the children's ministry, giving himself in any way that he possibly could. 
And I, I started a, a discipleship group during that time, and I, I brought him into my discipleship group, and we, we met, and I saw him grow in his love of the Word of God, and I saw him begin to flourish the questions he was asking, the leadership he was showing, it was phenomenal. I knew there was gold that was just growing in him. I finished that discipleship group, and it was time to launch a new one. And typically, you, you send those guys off, and you start a new one. And I said, now nah, you're coming with me. And I drug him into another discipleship group because I wanted to keep on investing in him because he just kept growing and growing and growing. And I got to be there with him when I saw him find an incredible woman and marry her. I saw him land a new job where God was providing for him. And then I saw him get to a point where he grew so much in his faith, he started saying, Jason, I think God may be calling me to ministry. And I saw him take a profound step of being called to be on a pastoral staff at a church. And I got to witness it because it was a pastoral staff member at this church. I've asked him if it's okay if I share his story and his name. And he said, graciously, it was okay. His, his name is Paul Durand. He's actually sitting right out there. Paul, I want you to stand up for me, if you will. The, the, reason I want you, the reason I want you to see who he is is because I want you to walk up to him and I want you to say, Paul, tell me your story because there's so much more to that story to tell that only he can tell. He just started seminary recently. He is serving on our staff. If you have a, children in the children's ministry, a child in the children's ministry, gets to work with Paul, but that man has, I've seen so much gold in that man as he's been, began to discover his call and how God is, if you could see Paul today and compare him to who he was seven years ago, you wouldn't even recognize the person. Completely different. And I, I tell you, and praise God for the applause, but that, that applause isn't for Paul, and that definitely isn't for me, because I didn't do squat except bring him back to the Word of God. The work was done because God's way works. You see somebody, you believe in them, and you invest yourself in them, and then miracles happen. And this isn't just for a pastor or a pastoral staff member or some, you know, super special, like super Christian, any human being in the love of Christ can see somebody else, believe in somebody else, and invest in them and watch their life change. God's plan works. But let me tell you why I know it works. It's not because of Paul. I mean, that was a, that was a great story for me to get to see firsthand. But the reason I know his plan works is because it worked on me. And it worked on you. This is his plan of redemption, by the way, in case you don't know it. The whole gospel is built on these three things. God saw us in our crippling spiritual poverty. He saw us indebted in a, a debt that we could never pay because we've sinned against a God who has only been good and loving to us. He saw us in this spiral out of control. We were killing ourselves and we couldn't stop it. He saw us, but he didn't just feel sorry for us. He didn't go, oh, pobrecito, I'm so, so sorry for him. He said, no, I believe that there's gold in this person. I believe there's potential. This person, this, this man, this woman bears my image. And I have a purpose for them on this planet. This is something people get so wrong. They think God is angry, but God is looking down going, here's my child. I've got so much for them. He sees us. He believes in us. And then he invests everything in us. So much so that God said to his own son, I want you to go to earth. And I want you to pay their debt because they can't pay it. They're never going to be able to pay me back for the way that they've marred my relationship and the way I've loved them. Son, only you're going to be able to do it. And Jesus said, I don't want to, Daddy. I don't want to. He says, please, go. And Jesus said, not my will, your will be done. And he goes to a cross and he is crucified and bears the wrath of God to pay the debt you and I could never pay. 
because the Father is investing in us. He didn't stop there. And the moment we choose to believe in that, he does the craziest thing. He gives us liberally of himself, puts his own spirit inside of us so that what used to be impossible now becomes possible. Where miracles can happen, where Paul could be at the verge of falling apart and become a man of God serving in the church. Why? Because the spirit of God was in him. And that same spirit is in every single one of us who believe in him. He has invested himself in us. He saw us. He believed in us. He invested in us. All he asks is that we trust him enough to go to him. There came a moment in every single person who was in grinding poverty, every single person who was overwhelmed with crippling debt, where they had to choose to sell themselves into indentured servitude to a master who could care for them. It's no different for you or me. Every one of us must have a moment in our life where we realize we are never going to get out of this debt that we have against God we're going to keep spiraling out of control. Our life will still be in shambles. We'll keep hurting ourselves and everyone else around us. We have no way out until we go to Christ. But let me tell you about this master, Jesus Christ. When you become his servant, you never want to leave. When you come into his house and you sit at his table and you feel his power and you sit under his protection, year seven, you're going, I don't want out. I want to stay in your house forever. That's actually what the very scripture was talking about in Exodus 21. I want to finish with these two verses because you saw a little glimpse of the gospel even in this crazy passage. Exodus 21, verses five and six. Listen to what it says. It says, but if the, plain, the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl. And he shall be his slave forever. So there's a moment when this servant has been living in the house of the master. And this master is so good, so generous, so kind. Everything is so beautiful. And all that he has, he realizes this is true freedom, being in my master's house. If I go out on my own, I can never have enough of what it's like to be in my master's house. He says, I want to be here forever. And when he chooses to do so, there's this public ceremony. When it says he takes him to the door and the doorpost and gets an awl and, and pierces his ear, it's a public ceremony to say this is permanent. This person is choosing to be a servant of this master forevermore, and all have witnessed it. Here's what I'm trying to tell you in Christ. You have found a master who is so good, there is no other place to go. When you're sitting at the king's table, eating the king's food, living under the king's protection, there's no freedom anywhere else. You want to be in his house forever, but you got to choose it. There is a ceremony for us, too, to be a servant of the master, King Jesus, forever. But it doesn't involve an awl or a piercing of the ear. It involves a baptistry. This baptistry is the public ceremony of permanence. It is a symbol that the old broken you is dead and gone. And now you are, you, you are joined, united with Christ, and you come out of that water with his resurrection and you now belong to Christ forever, permanently joined with him. It doesn't matter if you come to church. It doesn't matter if you try to be good. It doesn't matter if you give money to the poor. All those things cannot save you. The only thing that can save you is a one, and that one is Jesus. And you have to come to him and say, I cannot save myself. I'll never overcome this poverty. I give myself to you, Jesus. 
But the best part is Jesus already paid the price. There's no more price to give. All you do is live in his home for his glory. But you got to choose to come. I, I believe there are some of you here, and your life is overwhelming. You're, you're Paul at the beginning. You don't know where to turn. You don't know what to do. You need to start where Paul started. It was in recognizing the only hope is Christ and giving yourself completely to him. Today can be that day of liberation. Just like Exodus 21 is, this is a pathway to freedom, not a pathway to enslavement. Coming under Christ is a pathway to freedom. But you've got to choose to come. In a moment, you'll be able to come forward. And there's going to be pastors and counselors down front. And we're going to hear your desire. And we'll take you out over on the side. And we have a counselor who will make sure you understand the gospel. And if you do, we have a t-shirt that says, Jesus in my place. And you'll be able to step up, put on some shorts, a t-shirt, and get into this baptistry. And we'll be people who will wait to make this public ceremony of going forevermore, you can belong to Jesus Christ. This will be the turning point. But you're going to have to come. Wanting to isn't enough. Coming is the only thing that can change your life. But listen, before we do that, I also want to say there are many of you in this room. You've already made that decision. You've already had the public ceremony. You've given yourself permanently to Christ. But you can forget all that you have in the master's house. You could be a servant of the high king living out in the dumpsters, wearing tattered clothes, eating scraps left over. Not today. Not this morning. I don't know what's going on in your life, but if you have need, don't you dare forget who your master is. He's the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He is the one that there is nothing too difficult for. And whatever is going on in your life, today could be a chance for you to take that need or that burden to your master and say, I'm in your home Master, you alone can handle this. You've promised to protect me, to provide for me, to care for me, so I bring this need to you. That's what prayer is. And that's why we have prayer team members down front. And if you need to come to the master and ask for his power, he's ready. He's got to come. So I invite you all to stand up right now if you don't mind. We're going to have counselors, pastoral staff around, ready to pray with you, ready to counsel with you, ready to help you take the step of faith. If you're ready to come, Say, I need Christ. I'm ready, to, I'm ready to be his servant forever. You come let us know. We'll get you ready for the baptistry. If you need prayer, you come down and let us know. We want to pray for you. If you just need to worship, this song that we're saying is about our faith in Christ. He is too good not to believe in. Miracles can happen, so we trust in him. So we're going to worship him today. However you need to worship, however you need to respond, you do so.